All right, we'll see if people can relate to this first part. If I had a secret and I wanted that secret to remain a secret, I know exactly who I can and cannot tell. Can we relate to that? All right, so I was thinking about this. When it comes to secret keeping, I was thinking about three different kinds of people, right? I have a short list of people that I would trust with absolutely anything because I know that if someone threatened to chop off their finger, if they didn't tell, these people would go through life with less fingers. Do we know people like that? Then I was thinking about a second group of people. These people, I'm not so sure about. It's a gamble, a coin flip. I don't know if they keep my secret or not. I, I really have no idea. We, we just have to find out. But then there's a third group of people in the world that relish being in the know, right? They live to know everything about everyone else's business, and they love to talk about it. So if I wanted some sensitive information to leak its way out in the world, like I would find one of these people and I would preface the secret by saying, please, whatever you do, don't tell anyone what I'm about to share with you, right? And then I would know guaranteed that whatever I told them would be public knowledge like by the next day. I'd be lucky if it wasn't posted on like social media, you know? All right, so now this is, I normally ask questions and we have conversation, but this one's gonna be rhetorical because it's like, you'll see why. On a scale of one to 10, how do you do at keeping secrets? Right? You don't need to admit, like, I'm a terrible secret keeper. Um, like, or which of those three categories would you put yourself in if you had to? All right? So this is just to prime us to think about what we're going to talk about this morning. Not to make you feel bad, because you'll see there's a reason. We'll all feel a little bit better about ourselves, hopefully, in a minute. But one of the most distinctive features about Mark's gospel is something that call, scholars actually call the messianic secret, right? You learn about this in seminary. Chad, did you learn about this, Jennifer? Yeah. We learn about the Messianic secret in seminary. Um, all over the Gospel of Mark, we see these examples of Jesus commanding people to not tell others about who he is, about his identity, all right? Now, why would Jesus do this? Like, doesn't Jesus want the whole world to know who he is, right? It just, it's hard to wrap your mind around these things. There's actually a bunch of theories on this, which I am not going to bore you with. Um, so before we're too hard on ourselves, or before we're too hard on other people for not keeping secrets, here's what we're going to acknowledge right up front. All these people that Jesus said, don't tell anybody about my identity, what did they go out and do? Almost every single one of them. They did the exact opposite of what Jesus said to do. Like, and we have to wrestle with this question. Are these people being just straight up disobedient to a command that Jesus gives them? You know? And people answer that question differently. So we're going to kind of keep that in the back of our mind, right? Despite being commanded to silence, they use their voice to proclaim the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them. And because of this, Jesus becomes the worst kept secret ever, right? Let's pray. Almighty God, your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, is the light of the world. God, grant that your people, illumined by your word, may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory that the world would come to know of your incredible love in Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to hear from Mark 1, 28 to 45, and notice how many times Jesus commands silence. And then watch as his fame begins to spread all over Galilee. Here we go. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. 
They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, there's number one, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, throwing him into convulsions and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came, took her by the hand, and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve him. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons. He would not permit them to speak because they knew him. There we go again. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place. And there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you. He answered, let us go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came to do. And he went throughout Galilee proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. A leper came to him, begging him and kneeling. He said to him, if you choose, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hands and he touched him and said to him, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. After sternly warning him, he sent him away at once, saying to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the word so that Jesus could no longer go into a town openly, but stayed out in the country and people came to him from every quarter. The word of the Lord is at least three or four times in there, right? And so like last week I said, so we're going through the Gospel of Mark, and last week there was five sermons in last week's sermon. Today there's four. Um, so what? 25 minutes divided by four. Um, we won't take too long. But these things move really quickly, and you see a bunch of different things, but you see that these narratives are all connected by this one idea, this idea that Jesus is trying to keep his identity on the down low, and people are just sharing it with everyone. So already, John the Baptist has announced Jesus is coming, Jesus has been baptized, Jesus has been tempted in the wilderness, he's called his first disciples, and now this is the beginning of his roughly three-year public ministry. And he enters the synagogue at Capernaum to teach. Now, we have no idea what Jesus taught that day. But we do have um, is that we know something about his teaching. It's really instructive. People were astounded, is the word, because of his teaching. Not as the scribes taught, but it says, but as one having authority. Now, I receive 
comments regularly about my teaching. Um, the word astounding so far has never been used in conjunction with my preaching. Um, normally what I get is like, thank you for uh, your sermon podcast that helps me with my insomnia, Frank. Don't think I forgot that, Frank. So astounding, there's something different about Jesus's teaching, right? And so when a rabbi was bringing a new perspective on Torah. When, a new, when this rabbi came to town to teach, this rabbi was said to have authority. The Hebrew word for authority is actually really fun. It's called shmika. You want to try it? It's a really fun word. Um, and these authoritative teachers, they don't come around very often. So when they do, people are willing to make a real effort in order to hear them teach. I have a short list of who those teachers are um, have been in my life. And so I was kind of thinking about this. I just like this. Uh, this is what authoritative teachers have done for me. This is the way I think about them. They expand my mind, they open my heart, and they widen my embrace, right? This is what some of the authoritative teachers have done for me, right? And I have a short list of who these people are. The Greek word for authority is not nearly as much fun as shmika, um, but it relates to a word for it is free, and it's important. The teacher who teaches with authority teaches without hindrance. Their authority doesn't rest on tradition, it doesn't rest on position, and it doesn't rest on the size of their brain. And this is important. That's not where Jesus' authority is coming from. His authority is coming from somewhere else. In this case, his authority is coming directly from God. This is what Mark is telling us. Unlike the scribes, right, who are bound by tradition. Unlike me, who is bound by tradition, who receives his authority from tradition, Jesus is receiving authority from God. And so the people are present in the synagogue. They're hearing this new interpretation of Torah and they're, because they're hearing a word that's coming straight from the heart of God. This is what Mark is telling us when Jesus is teaching. He just doesn't give us the subject matter of the teaching. That's not what he wanted to talk about. And so what we know is that this new way, uh, this authority is actually the thing that's going to bring Jesus into conflict with the powers that be. Ultimately, it's going to be the thing that gets him killed and leads to his death. And yes, this is already being foreshadowed at the very beginning of Jesus's public ministry. Now, not only did Jesus teach with authority, but Mark says that he healed with authority as well. And so present in the synagogue is this man with an unclean spirit, okay? Mark's simple world of demons presents problems for modern people that are smart and sophisticated, people who know a lot more than they did in the first century. But what I want to do is talk about this common ground that I think we can find when it comes to demons because we don't all believe the same thing. But here's a few things I want us to consider. First of all, we would all admit that there are forces in the world that we cannot control. Can we, can we agree to that? Some of these things, uh, like this man, leads to a very tormented individual, right? And so we would all admit that there are forces in the world we can't control. We would also probably all admit that sometimes we feel powerless about these things that we cannot control, the things that we can't do anything about. We might even call some of those forces evil. Now, there are systemic forces like racism or poverty, right? There are very personal forces like addiction or mental illness. Many people feel themselves or someone that they love, they know that feel the weight of being under the grip of something that they cannot control. We all know that these things are very, very real. 
And this is what's happening in this, this story. This tortured man is under the grip of something so powerful, something that had complete control over him, something that he felt powerless in the face of. And here is Mark's point. Jesus, Jesus has authority to control the things that we feel powerless to deal with. This is what Mark is trying to say. And isn't it fascinating that this man knows exactly who Jesus is? He says, you're the Holy One of God. He knows that Jesus has authority over him. And so Jesus commands the man to be silent, this command for secrecy. He orders this unclean spirit to leave him, which it does. And everyone is amazed, asking, what is this? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Pretty soon, we'll see that Jesus commands the wind and the waves as well. And so there are forces in the world that we can't control. These forces that are at work in our own lives, forces that have their grip on us. And while we feel powerless, what Mark is saying is that Jesus has authority over even these things. And so Jesus and his disciples, they leave the synagogue. They go to the home of the fishermen brothers that we met last week, Simon, Peter, and Andrew. This house probably served as kind of a home base for Jesus and his disciples. While they're there, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law of a fever, and more sick people are being brought to him. And again, Jesus commands all to be silent, to keep his identity a secret. Next morning, he heads out to begin his preaching tour of Galilee, where word of his fame was spreading so quickly. Why? Because people couldn't keep a secret. They're doing exactly what Jesus said not to do, and word is getting out, right? And along the way, he comes across this man with leprosy who begs Jesus to make him clean. Now, we need to know just a few things about leprosy. Not only is it this horrible disease, but it also makes you ritually unclean, forcing them to live outside of the town, outside of community. They were, this is remarkable, they were actually required to make their own physical appearance as repugnant as possible, right? Here's what they had to do. They had to keep their hair unkempt. They had to wear tattered, ripped up clothes. They had to cover the lower part of their face. They wore a bell that signified when they walked, like when you're trying to avoid bears, right? so that everyone else can hear you. Why is this? And they were not allowed to come within 50 feet of another human being. It's really sad. Why? So that everyone would know exactly who and what they were. That they were these marginalized people. They were people to stay away from. So leprosy is not only an illness, it's a sentence. Not only is this man robbed of his health, but he's sentenced to a life of isolation, a life of loneliness. You know what the rabbis called? I I learned something this week. The rabbis even called lepers the living dead, long before zombie were popular. This leper is really bold. He breaks the law. He breaks custom. Jesus' response is no less scandalous. Any observant Jew would have done two things. They would recoil from this guy, and they would run. They'd keep their distance. This is what they were supposed to do. What does Jesus do? He does the unthinkable. He comes near this man, and he touches him. In doing this, Jesus is removing the social, the spiritual, and the physical boundaries that separate. 
And guess what? Jesus isn't infected. As a matter of fact, here's what Mark is saying. He's saying it turns out that Jesus is the one that's contagious, not the leper. Think about that. Now, there's a problem that's created in the translation of one important word. And I think it's important uh, because the original biblical manuscripts say that Jesus was moved by anger. Think about that. That's interesting because our translation that I read in the later manuscripts say that Jesus was moved by compassion or pity. So why, isn't there a big difference between being motivated by anger and being motivated by compassion or pity? And I had, I'm like, when I, when I heard that, I said, well, I got to get to the bottom of this. Like, I had to figure out why would the early biblical manuscripts use the word anger and why was it changed to compassion or pity, right? So I like scoured the commentaries, was racking my brain for an answer of why would Jesus possibly have been angry when this leper approaches him. It turns out, it, was, it just went back to the story and I looked at it. And the answer came contained right within the story. And it was the previous section. After a really long day of teaching and healing, the disciples, it says, hunted Jesus down. That's not a good word, by the way, right? Hunted. Um, it has some connotations. It's not good. Like the disciples weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. That's what that word means. And Jesus, they find him alone praying. Why? He's exhausted. He's overwhelmed by these crowds that are following him. He has to sneak away just to decompress a little bit, to get a moment's peace to recharge, which as an introvert, I can appreciate this about Jesus. Like when someone says to me, let's go back to the party, I say, no, I want to go home and snuggle my dog. Like, I don't want to go back to a party. You know what I mean? It took enough just to get to the party the first time. So the disciples are begging Jesus. They're begging him to go back to Capernaum. They want to keep the show going, enjoy the spotlight a little bit, right? Watch Jesus perform some more miracles and heal some more people. And what does Jesus say? He says, no, you know what? We're actually going to go the other direction. We're going to go away from Capernaum. We're going to go away from the crowds in order to do what? It says in order to proclaim the good news. This is the key. He says, for that is what I came to do. Turns out Jesus isn't going to go back to the party either. I'm so happy that Jesus and I at least have this one thing in common. Like, <laughs> thank you, God. So Jesus said he came to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God. But he's being completely overwhelmed by human suffering. But how does he meet the human suffering? With what? He meets it with compassion. He doesn't meet this man with anger. He meets him with compassion. But you know he couldn't heal everybody. The need was too great. His fame is now getting in the way of his mission. So he commands this guy. He says, he gives him two commands, which this is to me, this is fascinating. He says, don't tell anyone what happened. Don't tell people who I am. But then the second command he gives him, he says, oh, go show yourself to the priests and perform ritual cleansing. Anyone see any like contradiction in this command that Jesus gives this guy, right? Like, on the one hand, don't tell anyone, but on the other hand, as soon as he goes and shows himself, what's the first question that the temple officials are going to ask? What happened? Who healed you? Oh, this Jesus guy, right? It's like this, it's like any way you slice it, this secret, it was going to get out. It had to get out. And so we have to, we got to wrestle with it. It's a tough decision, and people answer this question differently. You can answer it for yourself. But this is what this man becomes. He becomes this healed proclaimer. He uses his voice, his life, to proclaim the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus had done for him. 
And so we have to make this decision about him, right? He does this. He's commanded to keep silent. He does the polar opposite. He offers his, his voice and his life as a witness to Jesus Christ. This once begging tongue, which is all the leper could do, they had to beg for their existence. His voice now goes from begging to become a voice for announcing the arrival and the good news of the gospel in Jesus. Was he, was he disobedient? I don't know. What do people think? Is this guy, dis, he disobeys a direct command of Jesus. Is, do people think he's disobedient? A lot of people do. A lot of scholars I looked at think this man was disobeying a direct order from Jesus. I, I don't know. Um, I'm not so sure about that. And I'm going to close with just a couple of thoughts. What I think is that Mark may be using this messianic secret as kind of a literary device. And here's what I think is happening. Jesus has work to do. And he said, this is the work that I have to do, right? I have to get out to these other towns. I've got to proclaim the good news of the gospel to more people. This is his urgent mission. This fame, the crowds, the human suffering, these mobs that are closing in around him, they're weighing down physically, emotionally, and Mark has Jesus kind of begging, like, please, like, don't tell people who he is because his work is not yet done, right? This is just the very beginning of his public ministry. He needs more time. The cross is not yet. It's coming. And so while Jesus is out proclaiming the good news, he's constantly encountering real human need, real human suffering, and Mark is showing us that Jesus is meeting all of those needs with compassion. And it's like, I thought to myself, we should be grateful, <laughs> grateful for this. And now I kind of understand a little bit about, is it possible? Could Jesus have been both angry and moved by pity or compassion at the same time? Both things can be true. I remember I was in the office of my late mentor, Charles Shields, for a regular meeting that we had. And I was complaining to him because I wasn't able to get something done because of all the interruptions in the office. Because too many people needed something from me, right? And it was taking my time away from the thing that my boss asked me to get done, and I didn't have it done. So I'm making every excuse in the world, right? Normally I'm not much of an excuse maker, but I can remember sitting there and telling him why I did not get this stuff done. I said too many people needed stuff from me. People just kept coming in, I just didn't have time to finish it. And he like, he was not happy with me and he stopped me and I thought I was in trouble. I'm like, uh-oh, you know, called in the principal's office. Um, I'm about to get in trouble for not having something done um, that I was supposed to have done. And he, I'd never forgotten what he said, and this is like 20 years ago. He's like, Rob, the ministry is the interruptions. The ministry is the interruptions. And he didn't elaborate. He didn't want to talk to me about it. He just kicked me out of his office. Like, just go think about that. And just like sends me on my way and I'm like, oh, you know, okay. And I did, I did think about that. And of course he's right. The, the interruptions, like the man with leprosy, he's the interruption in the story. Jesus has a job to do. He's trying to get to these neighboring towns. He's trying to proclaim the good news. But these interruptions, these people with real needs, these suffering people keep getting in the way, right? The ministry is the interruptions. And at first, these interruptions in our lives, what, what do they make us? They make us angry, don't they? They do me. Like, guess what doesn't happen when our lives get interrupted? Other things don't get done, right? It, add, it can add some additional stress. But when you think about this, 
And if you think about that, these, the ministry is the interruptions, all of these things, they can be very true, but the other thing can be true too if we understand that the ministry really is these interruptions, these people with real needs, dealing with real human suffering. Those things are the work in that moment. And that's what we see from Jesus in this stretch of scripture. This was the work in that moment. And we too, when we see it like that, we too might be moved to compassion. Our anger might become pity or compassion for people that are hurting, like it did for Jesus. And God only knows what kind of healing might be the result. Amen?